Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and I'm joined today by my guest, Jenny Wren Stotrup. Welcome. Hi. Hello. It's Hello. so nice to How be here, Will. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me here. This is rad. Yeah. Well, uh, Jenny, do you want to tell uh, our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do and what your, what your yeah. connection to the music world is? Yeah. So I'm Jenny, and I've been a part of the like Pacific Northwest music scene for, gosh, like 15 years. And I first got my start in it after I moved from Iowa. And I was doing jazz, learning piano, singing out in Seattle. And then eventually I ended up in uh, Portland where I ended up in this band that got really cool for a while, this band called Shy Girls. And it was a very special time. This is like way back, like back in 2012, 13. And this is key because of the fact that when I was getting invited on podcasts. That's how I got into podcasting. And I've been very, very focused on podcasting ever since. So I'm less focused on music these days, but it's still very, very much part of my core. And I love what I do. But like, wow, what a crazy world to have an industry just blossom out of nowhere. Yeah, cool. Yeah. We're talking about <laughs> August 1991 today. Do you have any idea what you were up to in 1991? I think I was a first grader. <laughs> I was a child. Yeah, were you yeah. um were you exposed to any music as a first grader? Do you remember like hearing these like pop songs and things or Yeah. As long as it was like in the top like 40 mm -hmm. for sure. My brother Jason would just play whatever he had in the hours and so like I would have my We Sing songs on mm -hmm. and then Jason would have on whatever he had. Can you think of anything? Anything in particular? I mean, I always think of like Metallica, mm. like specifically, because I remember being like, this is dark and weird, like very early. And I, I would say later on, it was I got very interested in hip hop and that was not a thing Jason was into. Jason was very into grunge and rock and like metal, but I think that they translated eventually, but for me, it was Metallica. Like, I just remember, like, hearing everything Metallica, and this is sort of when MTV was still very much videos, and VH1 was very much videos, mm -hmm. and if you got any moment that no one could watch, you could just sit there and see whatever was happening, and... There was a few of them where I'm like, I think this is bad. I don't think anyone should know that I'm, like, listening to this. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we have one song this month that hit number one on the charts, and we always listen to our number ones. So we're going to be hearing from a band called Big Audio Dynamite 2. And this was basically the brainchild of former Clash co-founder and co-vocalist Mick Jones. Are you a Clash fan at all? I love the Clash, yeah. yeah. Love the Clash, yes. But I, I'm, not a, I'm not a young Clash fan. I'm, a, I'm like a, I love the Clash Tell me more. So Mick Jones was in The Clash. In 1983, he was fired from The Clash. And around the same time, there was a, a British reggae ska punk band called The Beat, or The English Beat, depending on where you live. Uh, and that band was breaking up too. And two members of that band, Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger, they formed a new band called General Public. 
And they were huge fans of Mick Jones, and they heard that he had been kicked out of the Clash, so they invited him to join them. And so uh, Mick Jones was sort of in general public for a little while, and he didn't stay in the band, but he did record some guitar work with them that ended up on their first album, including uh, their big hit, Tenderness. No, that song's classic. Yeah. Yeah. This song was featured in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Weird Science, mm -hmm. 16 Candles, yeah. Clueless. Like, it just shows up all over the place. Yeah. So um, that's Mick Jones in there playing a little guitar work, and I think that's kind of fun. And, and Mick Jones' name has been one that is consistently one that brings a bell. Like, people know of Mick Jones more than a lot of other people from the 80s, sure. like early 90s. Right, yeah. And he, yeah. he's continued to work. You know, he's to kept himself fairly relevant, uh, even going into like the 2000s. And so... What's he up to in the 2000s? He recorded with Gorillaz, and he oh, did some work with the Flaming Lips hands. and the Wallflowers and yeah. some other stuff. Wow, actually, that's pretty impressive as far as like a fun... Because those are bands that have played with sound and style very, very much. Okay, yeah. good to know. Thank you. I'll keep that in my sound bank. So um, anyway, following his short-lived stint in general public, Mick Jones <laughs> formed the first incarnation of Big Audio Dynamite. Like I said, we've heard them before on the show. They had a number one in 1988 with Just Play Music. In 1989, they reached number two with the song James Brown. But in 1990, the band broke up, and Mick Jones reformed the band as Big Audio Dynamite 2. So um, I guess that this is the first time we're actually hearing part two of the band this is very much when i think of this i think of uh smashing pumpkins in their second generation because they were very much them and then in 2006 smashing pumpkins came out with like were the other smashing pumpkins and oh, yes. like you're like okay and like there was a lot of controversy around that but they eventually found their sound and some of them are actually portland artists mm -hmm. that are part of that but it's part two it's still billy corgan those original yeah. band members were so key to it and the word and like whatever your and is yeah you need to add it because like whatever your feeling was whatever your sound was whatever you felt about the future things that that word and is subjective and i maybe the and is that smashing pumpkins should have called themselves smashing pumpkins too <laughs> when they came back the yeah, second right? time just like Big Audio Dynamite too, yeah. Yeah, like I I kind of thought it was just lazy, but I guess you get the name recognition, so you're pulling in old fans, but you're also saying, hey, heads up, everybody, this is not the same thing, so yeah. don't expect it to be. So the song we're going to hear is called Rush, and this was initially released on the UK album Kool-Aid in 1990, but initially it was a song called Change of Atmosphere, and it was almost eight minutes long. And when they released this album as The Globe seven months later in the U.S., they heavily edited the song. It got cut down from 7.48 to, I don't know what, quite a bit shorter. And um, they, among other things, added a bunch of samples. So, so I guess we can talk about the samples later. Let's listen to the song. Uh, here it is, Big Audio Dynamite 2's Rush. All the Time that I've been down I didn't get too high 
song but again i've always known that song from film scores okay yeah uh, but it was really fun because i did not ever hear that full version yeah that's a really fun song i you know that's one that i've heard many many times it's a song that's like i don't know it's still stuck around it still gets play like alternative radio stations still play it when they're wanting to play classic older songs i was actually amazed to learn that this one did not chart on the Hot 100 at all in the U.S. See, that doesn't surprise me at all. They went too long with the cuts. I mean, the, the breakdown in the middle of the song is bold, yeah. to say the least. So this would have been a popper in any club, for sure. And like when you think about the remix culture that has always existed, and especially existed before like probably 2005, mm-hmm. everything was about the remix. Like, I mean, remember, like, you download a song to Napster and, like, the remix, and you'd be like, damn it, I got the remix. Uh-huh. And then you you download five and you get the right one. But, like, in the meantime, you got, like, five remixes, which I didn't think that I'd appreciate. But, like, dude, I listened to five remixes uh-huh. about a concept before I had that. And I'm like, dude, I'm so glad I heard that. <laughs> but I don't think general audiences want, wanted to have that because they just want to, like, listen to something and just dance and not be like, I have to think. I mean, that's true, but there's things you can listen to here and think about, but it's also just insanely immediate and catchy. Yeah. I can't imagine anyone hearing this and oh, very you know, not instantly going like, oh yeah, I'm in. I love this song. Yeah. And I'm glad. Thank you for cool. introducing me the whole piece of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, honestly, I just, I just like listening to Mick Jones sing. Like he doesn't have what you would call a, a great singing voice, but there's just this quality to it that is really compelling and real. And I think he does because he hits the front nasal palate sound so well and he gets it while keeping to the rhythm and like keeping people engaged. Mm-hmm. I think he nails it. I think he really, really does. He nails the punk sound while bringing it into a new century right. while still having it rock. I think he really, really gets that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. If you look at the, the early punk bands, um, they tended to either kind of tread water and, and do the same thing for a very long time, or uh, a lot of them really polished themselves up. And, and when you listen to their output from the late 80s or early 90s, it it doesn't really sound like it has much connection to punk at all. And this is a really cool song and a really cool band where like, yeah, this is very different than early clash. Like they brought in a lot of dance influences, a lot of club culture, mm-hmm. but you can hear it in his voice. Like it, there's still that punk connection, which is, which is awesome. There's a lot of samples in this song. There's a lot of samples in the song. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the samples that's kind of easy to pick out is from Baba O'Reilly by the who. I know Bob O'Reilly super well, and I swear I heard Rush probably 300 times before it even occurred to me that that I was hearing Bob O'Reilly sampled in the song. So I get, you know, I guess it's like I didn't really know that much about sampling, and I wasn't like on the listen out for it, and I just kind of assumed that everybody was making their own songs from scratch. 
I didn't mean to interrupt. I just got excited. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you assume that people all made things from scratch. And yes. like, I want to I want to bring back what you're saying, because I just got excited and I said it. But I want you to finish that thought. I assumed that everything that I was hearing uh, was just being made from scratch. And it wasn't until quite late. I was probably like late into my teens or early 20s before I started realizing that a lot of things I was hearing were sampled from older music. And, you know, obviously I'm not talking about hip hop music. I, I was pretty aware of that taking place. But um, in rock music, I had no idea that so many songs were, were sampling from other sources. It's kind of cool. So what's our next song? We're going to go a little further down the list. We're going to hear a song that peaked at number three. And this is from a band called Squeeze. Squeeze was formed in 1974 in London, England by Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook. Initially, the band was called Captain Trundlow's Sky Company. So I'm glad they didn't go with that, but they eventually settled on Squeeze, uh, which they named after the famously terrible uh, Velvet Underground album, which I don't think actually features any original members. And coincidentally, uh, in 1978, Squeeze was releasing their first album, uh, which was produced by John Cale, formerly of the Velvet Underground. And he made the band throw out all of their material and write new songs on the spot. And he apparently tried to convince the band to call the album Gay Guys, but they talked him out of it somehow. The album wasn't fantastic, but they did follow it up with three really, really great albums starting in 1979 with Cool for Cats. And if anyone listening does not know Squeeze's early work, they really need to check it out. Like Their run of amazing singles in their early years was just totally fantastic. So anyway, uh, fast forwarding a bunch of years to 1991, Squeeze had reached the top 40 in the UK eight times at that point. But by 91, they had broken up, they had reformed, they had dumped a bunch of original members. They put out a bunch of not super great albums. They recruited a bunch of session musicians, and they were releasing their ninth album called Play. We're gonna hear a song off of Play. And the song is called Satisfied. I feel bad reviewing this song. <laughs> I feel I mean, okay, bad I'll, reviewing... I'm be okay, I... I want to hear your... Yeah, go. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't know if I'm the best person to review the song because I, I really do... I dearly, dearly love their early stuff. I've got a bunch of their albums. I've seen them live in concert. I'm, I'm a really big Squeeze fan up until, like, 1982. And then I feel like... They changed their style into a direction that I do not really like. It it got kind of more like, I don't know, white soul, whatever you want to call it, and more adult contemporary sounding. And uh, whereas before it was like kind of arty and weird and super catchy and fun. I don't know. It's not like it's a bad song, but this is just not doing anything for me. And I can, I barely feel like it's alternative music. When I hear this song, the first thing I think of 
is that somebody licensed this song for a TV movie. And like that, that's just my first thought for it because it was likability, timing, you know, pop culture. And I, I, I really hear, I hear this song as being written for something specific. Mm-hmm. And if they hit that chart topping, I don't know anything about this song, but like I hear that and I bet you could look it up and probably find all those factors. Yeah, like you think, so you're saying like someone specifically hired them and said, hey, we need a song uh, for this scene where uh, this thing's happening and it's got to have this kind of mood. Go do that for us. Well, it, well, if it, because what was it in number it two number or three. number three? Mm-hmm. So if it was number three, I would say it was probably either a TV movie of the week or at the worst, because that was in the era of like, that was actually a big thing then, like you it would be the Friday night movie or the Sunday night movie. That was a big, big deal at that point. Like not even like movie movies, but that was a huge, huge thing at the time. And I would say that was a possibility. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, mean I, I didn't see anything like that in my research, but I don't, still, I have no idea. It does have that, that vibe yeah, to it for sure. It just wouldn't shock. It just wouldn't, sh- it just has the vibe and it wouldn't shock me. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously like I'd have to interview one of them to be like, so t- <laughs> if I meet one of them, I'd be like, so let's have a chat about that song. Yeah. Cause like that's it. None of it has anything about those, that particular time period where people like were into it. So I'm with you. It's not like a, it's kind of a throwaway for me as far as the songs in this era. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing the next one. Right. Yeah. But the, the big takeaway for me yeah. is this. I didn't really know this song before, you know, doing this episode. And we just listened to it. And if you ask me to sing it back to you, I could tell you absolutely nothing about the song except that they say the word satisfied. I don't know how the tune goes. I don't, like, none of it stuck with me. I'd go Yacht Rock. Yeah. I'd go Yacht Rock and I'd want to remix it. Okay. Like, I'd say, like, there's elements of it that I would want, be like, there's nothing bad there. I just don't think it was suited for the early 90s, 80s. I think that it's a song that could have been remixed in a different okay. way. Well, I'll be like, on the lookout for the remix. And on the on the very kind. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to end on a negative note. So, like, squeeze rules. Go, go <laughs> yeah. listen to the early stuff. It's amazing. I, I'm also excited. Thank you for sharing the early stuff. Um, so next is who's next? Uh, next is we're going to listen to Kirsty McCall. Kirsty McCall is someone who I was not super familiar with outside of her um, her duet with Shane McGowan of the Pogues on the uh, Christmas classic Fairy Tale of New York, um, which I've mentioned before. I'll mention again. It's my very favorite Christmas song of all time. It's incredible. I love it. I love her work on that song. Amazing. If anyone doesn't know Fairy Tale of New York, go listen to it. Rock it nonstop from now until Christmas. But I did a bunch of research on her for the episode because I didn't know much more beyond that. And uh, she is a British singer who first recorded under the name Mandy Doubt when she was a member of the short-lived punk band Drug Addicts with an X. And Stiff Records did not like her band at all, but they liked Kirsty a lot. So they offered her a solo deal, which she took. And uh, she was pretty young. She got to start as a songwriter, writing for other people, uh, and also interpreting other people's songs. And her first single, which she wrote when she was just 16 years old, was called They Don't Know. And it became a huge hit 
for comedian Tracy Ullman in 1983. I love Tracy Ullman. Yeah. Like, I'm just sitting here... Like, nobody can see this, but I've been dancing in the back because I think Tracy Ullman's, like, one of the baddest asses Tracy of all Ullman's time. Tracy very cool. And I'm sitting here just yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just sitting here being like, Tracy Ullman. I know. We can thank her for The but Simpsons, I which I love. <laughs> all right. So, Christy McCall had some sizable hits in the UK with her own songs and with some covers, including uh, she covered Billy Bragg's song, A New England. And uh, Billy Bragg is a modern rock artist who we're talking about later this season, I think. She also did a lot of backup singing, so I think she did some work for Simple Minds, and she sings on some Smiths and Morrissey songs, and she sings backup on Nothing But Flowers by the Talking Heads. Um, so she's really all over the place. It's kind of cool. In 1991, Kirsty McCall released her third album, which is called Electric Land Lady, which I love. Uh, I mean, I love the title of. It's a play on a Jimi Hendrix album. And... Um, this was her second album with her then-husband, Steve Lillywhite, who produced. And we're going to hear the first single off of this album called Walking Down Madison. And this song originally was created as an instrumental demo by Johnny Marr. Once again, we're always talking about Johnny Marr, formerly of the Smiths. Johnny Marr is rad. He is rad. Um, and so Johnny Marr sent this demo to Kirsty McCall through the mail, and she added some lyrics and a vocal melody. And they initially offered the song to Allison Moyer, uh, but McCall ended up recording it herself, and it went to number four on the modern rock charts. So here it is, Kirsty McCall walking down Madison. From an uptown apartment to a night on the Get a strong reaction to that one. It's a song that is now, and it's very legitimate. And the lyrics are super, super, super on. Mm-hmm. I caught a few of the lyrics of this. So when we look at the late 80s and the early 90s, it was like a bad, bad economic depression, especially in Great Britain. And this song talks about the high levels and the low levels and so in the last song we talked i mentioned how frustrated i feel music can be portrayed so well in british music because of the fact that like there's such a divide Mm -hmm. like it's way more than anywhere like anywhere else i've ever seen it was really really bad like during that time just millions were out of work and like having been a person who's gone through other recessions and who studied politics, I would say this song, how big it got, was because people were like so frustrated and it needed to be beautiful. And it also captured this weird part of that era where which where it went to like weird like second genre. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is yeah. very, 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 very real for the late 80s, early early to mid 90s. Like there's a lot of like switching genres, mm-hmm. um, Aerosmith, like, you know, there's a lot of like play with that. Yeah. And there's 100% there. But there's also a lot of pain in that. It, it does make me curious, like when people listen to the song, were they picking up the message? I, it's pretty easy to pick up, I think. So I think most people hearing it would understand what was being sung and rapped about. So very emotional. Yeah. Musically speaking, when it first starts out, I was a little taken aback because uh, this song sounds like it, it's an R&B song almost when it first very kicks much. off. It also brought me forward to like like Diddy and Kim and when Biggie died. Mm-hmm. Like I would say that song too. I would say the same emotional level was very much there, which is one of my favorite songs, which is always for me had an emotional impact. But like same thing it's like there's that emotional impact that you're mentioning just now yeah so having listened to the band electronic uh one of johnny marr's side projects i can hear johnny marr in this song especially when it gets to the chorus it sounds very much in the same vein of electronic but obviously there's also a bunch of different directions they're going into and um I don't know if people listening to the show are going to hear the clip, uh, but there is like the the rap breakdown. That's a rapper named Anif Akinola, and I gotta say, I don't, I love I love it when when the raps get like political and when they get I don't know when they when they got a message and they're like telling something real and they're you know describing how things are and what the problems are. Like this could have aged very poorly, and yet it it feels totally super relevant. Yeah. It does make me wonder the 1991 like we're coming off at least in America like a, a decade of greed. Yeah, I'm wondering how this message resonated with Americans at the time if they were still like what are you talking about like it's awesome that there's rich people walking around like who cares about the poor? Like I have no idea like if, if that was still kind of the attitude at the time or not. I'd say if someone's listening and you know they have a perspective I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sure for you too. <laughs> All right, so two two quick notes here. Um, the third single from this album, Electric Landlady, it's called All I Ever Wanted. It was co-written by Marshall Crenshaw, who we just heard from last episode. And Marshall Crenshaw later submitted this song, All I Ever Wanted, as his entry to the competition to write the theme song for the movie That Thing You Do. Really? Yeah. They used to have a competition for that? Yeah, they had a they had a big competition for the movie and I think they got like thousands of submissions. I mean, I heard just tons and, and actual as, as you can tell, actual like real famous songwriters sent in their songs. That movie is actually fascinating in what they did choose. I've mm-hmm. I've like read articles about it. I didn't know that first part, but I've read things about the post side. That's cool. Right. And it, of course, it ended up losing out to the song, That Thing You Do, which was <laughs> written by Adam Schlesinger, who um, sadly died this year of COVID-19. I'm just going to say, really? Yeah. Really? Just a quick pause. Yeah. Let's just give a thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you. And now we can move forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, sadly, in 2000, Kirsty McCall, she was killed when she was uh, on vacation oh, with her sons. didn't expect that. What happened? She was diving with her sons in Mexico. And oh, um, no. apparently she Shit. noticed a, a fast moving motorboat or powerboat heading toward one of her sons. And she swam over and pushed him out of the way. 
and he um, survived with minor injuries, but she was hit by the boat and died instantly. And apparently there's this whole thing where the boat was owned by some really, really rich multimillionaire guy, and there was suspicion that he was driving, but one of his poor employees took the blame, and no one was ever really punished for it. And Well, Christy, we appreciate the song that you shared with us, and... Uh... Thank you. Freak motorboat accident. It's, I don't know. There's just something especially upsetting about that. And the fact that she was with her kids. But like, you know, it's just like crap happens. And it's so sad because you're like, I don't want bad things to happen to people. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I don't know how to move on, but let's move on. We're going to hear one more song. Let's move on. Okay. So our last song is. Our last song is by a band called Marble. The House of Love. Yeah, we've talked about The House of Love on the show. I think listeners know that I'm a big fan. The House of Love was formed in 1986 in London by Guy Chadwick. And he was inspired to start a band after seeing the Jesus and Mary Chain live. And so he put together a five-piece band. They're just really talented and really cool. And they put out a lot of great singles. And it seemed like they were really poised for success and uh, then it didn't happen. So in 1991, they were coming off a pretty successful album. I think they had sold like 400,000 copies on a fairly small label. And on that tour, their guitarist, Terry Bickers, left. Guy Chadwick was doing too many drugs. He was getting burnt out. And so the band couldn't get it together to record a new album. They wanted to keep momentum up. And so in 1990, they released an album called A Spy in the House of Love. And this is a compilation album. It's B-sides and unreleased materials. And it was really just a stopgap until they could find the time and motivation and whatever else to record a new album and hoping people didn't forget about them in the meantime. So uh, one song from that compilation album, it's called Marble. It was released as a promo single in the U.S. only. And it reached number five on the modern rock charts. And that's what we're going to hear. feel like that's the strongest of the whole set cool i would say partly because it's just like a song like set the whole thing and i just like enjoy listening to it and i kind of spaced out which for me is like a good sign yeah it's it's and... good to listen to especially with headphones and it is a yeah. good one to space out to <laughs> especially like to think that this was one of their tracks that they thought was not good enough to put on a proper album they're great songwriters yeah just like the way it comes in the drums and the guitar and it's I don't know, it's got this post-punk feel to it, but... Yep, 100%. Like, they still have enough pop sensibility, and they never get lost in themselves, you know? Like, no. this was this song was under four minutes, and a lot of time, I feel like that stuff can just drag on, and they don't know what they're doing, and they're just kind of, like, jamming. They're doing, you know what I mean? With that kind of music, and uh, that's not here. It's just a really good track, and I, I think when we're thinking about that era... Mm -hmm. 
that's a good song for 1991. And if we're looking at those four, I would say that's the most 1991. That's the strongest track of all of them. It's the most of that time. It's the most honest. It's the best of those. So the first one, I love that track. But I would say it's also trying to... It's playing up to sensibilities. But I would say this one, it's classic. It's got it's got a classic sensibility that when I hear it 20 years later, I wouldn't have known it was 1991 because I think it could be any of those years. Sure, yeah. I think this could have come out in a lot of different times for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's got just a real a real good sound to it. It sounds like the band is in control. You know, it sounds tight. It sounds like they know exactly what they want it to sound like. And it's it's got a little psychedelic feel without getting too psychedelic. It's got uh, a moody vibe without getting too depressing. Like, it's, I, I don't know, it's just a nice yeah. balance. And I enjoy listening to, uh, to Guy's voice, too. It's, you know... I like his voice. He's a nice tenor, actually. He's not too mm-hmm. deep. Da, 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 dee, da, dee, da, da, da. Like, it's nice. Yeah. It feels like I would listen to more of it. I did. I spaced out. But I feel like it was just because it was like, I'm like, this feels good and relaxing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear all the lyrics, which is, I I think I'm never, I've never been a, like a heavy lyrics person because I, for me, when I like get into the melody of something that I really love, I just space out. And that's actually compliments anyone I'm listening to. And then if I listen back, or I'm like, oh, I really like that. I want to hear back that I'll get to know the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is a band that I would 100% be like, oh, wait. And already I'm like, I want to rewind it. Sure. I want to I hear what they said. But I just appreciated that first experience so much. Yeah. Because um, that was my first experience. We just experienced cool. it. Okay. Well, that was uh, that was our bands. That was it. Yeah. August 1991. How did that sound? August 1991. We're here. Did it seem 80s to you? I mean, I guess that would make sense. Um, I would say the middle two songs did. The first song, no, because that could be played into current DJ mixes, especially in the twenty, like the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Not so much these days lately. The last track is classic. So I would say the middle two 100% were very dated. But the first and the last track could be placed in, in different time zones for sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and then like I said, it was it was all Brits today, but um, that's not totally uncommon for the modern rock charts of this era. That's fun. And, uh, yeah. We're gonna get some Americans coming back real soon. So um, yeah, well, thanks for joining me. Uh, before we get going, Jenny, uh, is there anything that you would like to plug or anything you want to send some listeners to check out? You can always go to grittybirds.com/blog. That's where I share my tech crap. I would say that's the main place I post. I'm building out like the YouTube and things like that. But like, yeah, I just, you know, come in and say hi. And I always feel free to reach out to me through those networks. But I love talking to people about music and tech. So say hello. Cool. This was fun. I had a good time. Thanks, Jenny, for joining me. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you next time in September 1991. Bye. Bye, guys.